for those who've been listening to the show, you know what's about to happen. I am going to somehow provide way too much information and overshare about my life right now and somehow connect it to today's guest, Julie Kalitza. So here we go. It's a good one. I have been really lucky in my jobs during the course of my life. I've never been fired from a job, and fortunately, I have never had to quit a lot of jobs. Most of the jobs that I had had just ended as a natural result of things just coming to an end. The summer ended, or it was an internship and I was a student, the semester ended, or it was a term position that lasted for a year. I have only ever unceremoniously quit one job in my entire life. The details of that job are mundane and boring. There was window washing involved. It was a men's clothing store or a clothing store in general for the overly hip. There was an ampersand in the name of the clothing company. And it cost me way too much money, oddly, to work at this company because I was required to buy their clothes. So yeah, I unceremoniously walked out one day and never came back. But what all of these different jobs that have ended amicably have, you know, had in common is an exit interview, an opportunity to talk with your employer and say what it is that you enjoyed or didn't enjoy about the time that you were working there. It was a great opportunity for me to get to know myself a lot better and to provide feedback for the employer because I wasn't coming back. I was moving on to the next internship or I was moving on to the next level of my professional life. In the end, it was catharsis, and I was so happy to have it. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. Today's guest is Julie Kalitza from Wolfpack ATX, from ButcherBox, from Hoggins Berman Supermint, from Pepper Palace, from a host of other teams that she has been a part of in the last 12 or 13 years of her life as a professional bike racer. She has retired effective this year. This is a huge moment of congratulations, but it's an also a moment for us, the lucky ones who've gotten to know her, to get to talk with her about what she's learned from her experiences and what she's been able to share moving forward with those people who are younger than her or those people who are less experienced than she is in this sport. We talk here in this episode about all of the lessons that she has learned throughout the course of her time, from being a soccer player to being a bike racer and to now being a, checking notes, Muay Thai fighter. She's had an incredible amount of experience in professional sport, in athletics, and in testing her mind and body. And we are all, having known her, the better for it. But in her career, she has always been the consummate team player. She has been the person who selflessly did what she needed to do for her teams to achieve success. When you're on teams with people like Lily Williams, Harriet Owen, Olivia Ray, Leanne Ganser, Emma White, when you're on teams like that with people who are just winners, who close out, you got to start to wonder what is the link between all of them? Why are they so capable of success? That reason 
is people like Julie, the people who are selfless and the people who are willing to go that extra mile so that somebody else can take the benefit of it. But we aren't going to overlook the races that she has won in her career because even the selfless, even the ones who are constantly promoting other people and other people's accomplishments are going to win races because that's what happens to good people. So right now, for the next few moments in time, we are going to talk about the six races that Julie Kalitza has won in her professional bike racing career, dating back to 2011, the sprint into spring crit where she was racing for VA Asset Group presented by Artemis Trek. Don't know anything about this race. It took place on May 15th. She won. That's awesome. The next race, however, I know all about. 2012, she won the William & Mary Tidewater Classic Road Race. This is such a fun race. It normally happens in March. It's a collegiate race associated with William & Mary, the second oldest college in the United States. 1693. If you want to donate money to William and Mary, $16.93 is great. I'm sure they'd prefer $16,000.93, but whatever. 1693 is the year that they were founded. I finished 21st in this race, two places behind some guy named Frank Cundiff. I don't know. It's uh, all a wash, but this is such a cool race. She won it. The next one on her list, 2013, so the next year, the Meadows Farm Circuit Race in Richmond, Virginia. Such a cool race. I got dropped in this race, not in the specific one that she was in, but in the men's version, it was a really great race in a parking lot around the farm grounds that where Secretariat was born, the famous horse. Super cool. Wish they would bring it back. The Shamrock Crit down in Hampton, Virginia, or maybe Norfolk. I can never remember what the difference is between the two towns, and I'm going to get yelled at for not knowing it. But I think this was on the other side of the bridge, so that makes it Norfolk. It is a bone-flat, almost circular crit. You could see side to side. I think I recall that year I held 310 watts for an entire hour. It is the single highest average wattage, not normalized, but average wattage that I ever held in a race. Julie wins it against 13 of her competitors. Congrats right there. That brings us forward to 2015, the Tour of Hampton Roads. That's on this side of the bridge, so that makes it Hampton, Virginia, the... Hampton Roads area. Don't know where the whole Hampton Roads thing is, but whatever. Dan Netzer, friend of the pod, put on this incredible two-day, three-day race, depending on which year it was. Time trial, crit, road race. The time trial was awesome. Had a leg breaker type hill right at the very end because that's where you need it. In the crit, however, it was around a downtown center plaza with a fountain and cobblestone streets. It was awesome. I wish Dan would bring it back, but he's too busy riding Zwift and listening to Nowhere Fast on the wide-angle podium. But Julie wins this race in the great year of 2015. And that brings us to her most recent race win, May 11th, 2019, when she was racing for Hoggins Berman Superman. I was there at the finish line of this race. I saw it happen. It is the cover photo for this episode, shot by Bruce Buckley, the famous photographer here in Washington, D.C. 
Julie wins in a two-person breakaway at the Poolsville Road Race. It is kind of the precursor to the Belgian Waffle Ride here in the Mid-Atlantic. It's a race that features several miles of gravel, a hard right-hand corner, downhill sweeping onto a gravel section, super sketch sometimes, whatever. The road normally washes out at some point in time, like two or three days before the race starts, so you've got massive potholes. She was able to get up the road with Angela Parada, friend of the pod, who designed the logo for this show and beats her in a two-person sprint on probably one of the most nasty tarmac-type pavements, suck the life out of your legs-type asphalt that we can find in the Mid-Atlantic in that final sprint. It was so great to see her win, and I didn't know at the time that that would be her last win in a bike race. Now, we could spend literally the next hour and a half, two hours talking about every single win that she's been a part of on the various teams that she's been a part of because she's been on teams with consummate winners who win because of the selfless work that Julie is willing to put in. But like I said, that would take several hours and we've got a lot of great content and material here already where Julie just provides us with so much evidence and information and thoughts on where we are, where we're going, how things have changed, and how things can be better, and also answers a few lightning round questions at the end, just for levity and just for fun, because it is that time of the year where Hallmark movies are becoming way bigger and way better. We might as well keep it lightweight here. Speaking of lightweight, not the best segue that I've ever done done, but here we go. The Wide Angle Podium network of shows, this show is a part of it, wideanglepodium.com. Go there to find out everything you need to know about Nowhere Fast, previously mentioned. Also, the Cyclocross Radio, the Grodio, awesome podcast. Hopefully one day I'll be on it when I have my Grodio-type successes at Belgian Waffle Ride or any of the other gravel races I dare to enter this coming year. The Slow Ride podcast would love to be on that show, but I don't know if I possess the comic wit of somebody like Tim, the Super Rookie Hayes, but I'm willing to give it a shot, guys. I really am. If you need a reliever, bring me in. I'm there. There is so much good stuff at the Wide Angle Podium. Go to the website, find out how you can become a member to help support this content creator, content-driven creator effort a lot of words, kind of mixed up a few of those there, but you get the sense. We're all a bunch of people who are trying to make the cycling world better, and we're giving of our time. And if you can help buy us a cup of coffee or buy us a drink by donating and becoming a member of the the entire network, we would so very, very, very much appreciate it. We are this week brought to you by Manscaped, manscaped.com. It is a men's grooming company. You've heard Alan and I talk about it ad nauseum, ad extensum for a long period of time. It's fancy Latin words. I got an education at one point in time and I wanted to show you all that I had it and I could use those words. The cool thing about Manscaped is that the Lawnmower 4.0, fourth generation now lawnmower, is there to clean you up for this holiday season. If you're a man, if you know a man, if you are a woman 
who knows a woman. If you are anybody who knows anybody who needs help with trimming, they have this product called the Lawnmower 4.0. It is ergonomically designed. It is engineered to high specifications. It is super easy to use. It is designed to be used. It's designed to help make your experience in grooming better. We've talked about how it's okay to care about grooming as a man, as a woman, whatever you happen to be. If you want to look good, knock yourself out. Make yourself look good and feel good. It helps you out. If you want to find the best product, go to manscaped.com. Take a look at what they've got. It's Christmas time. It's probably the perfect time to start thinking about buying that person that you love something. Use the promo code Criterium Nation, all one word at checkout for 20% off plus free shipping. It's not just the lawnmower, it's not just the full line of, of products. It's also the weed whacker for ears and nose. Not a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to my wife, but maybe that would be a super cool Christmas or birthday gift. I have a December birthday. Do not buy the birthday Christmas gift as one. Just please, separate gifts. It'll make all of us Christmas babies happy. Happy birthday, Starla Tedegrin. By the way, we know it. You, me, all of us Christmas babies. It's hard being us. So, We've got two more episodes after this one coming up, and then we're going to take a little bit of a break for the winter. Got to get some training in, got to get some new ideas in. If you guys have ideas, if you've got guests that you want us to talk about, if you've got recommendations on new songs, new music, we know that some people from Boston aren't the biggest fans of our intro song here. It's okay. I'm not either, but royalty-free music is hard to come by sometimes and taking the time to listen through an entire catalog. So if we've got any really like fun, musically inclined people who might be able to do a theme song for us, we would be really, really super appreciative. I've got great ideas. They don't have to all sound like, um, what's the one at the end sound like? Oh yeah, Simple Minds. Yeah, royalty-free music, it's kind of weird. But hit us up, criteriumnation at gmail.com is the show's email address. Send us an email, tell us what you think about what we're doing. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it happens to be. If you like what you hear, please leave a review. We'll be incredibly appreciative of it. So here we go. Celine and I are with Julie Kalitza. Just a quick editor's note. I know we've already talked for way too long for it to be quick, too late, but... There was a little wonkiness with the internet connection when we were recording this, so there is some points of time during Julie's audio where it gets a little pixelated. I'm really sorry about that. I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm going to work to make sure it doesn't happen again in the future. So please bear with us on that. But the content and what Julie says is well worth dealing with the occasional pixelation. We're talking Julie Kalitza, we're talking exit interview for bike racing, and we're doing all of that right now. Uh, This is Julie Kalitza. I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and I am the current executive director of the Amy D Foundation. Before we even get going, we need to congratulate you on the successful conclusion of your professional bike racing career with Wolfpack ATX. Congrats on on reaching that milestone. Thank you. 
I'm excited to be done. <laughs> I know the last time that you were on the show, which believe it or not, was a little over two years ago, you were talking about what happens next, what happens in Julie's life when professional bike racing is no longer a part of it. You took this job with the Amy D Foundation basically between then and now. So the audience here doesn't know necessarily what the executive director for Amy D does, much less what the Amy D Foundation might be. So can you lay out what the Amy D Foundation is? I would hope that some of the listeners are familiar with the Amy D Foundation. Um, we've been in existence since basically 2013. People don't know. Um, I understand a lot of people are newer into the sport, but Amy Dombrowski uh, was a, a professional cyclist in both uh, cyclocross and on the road. And she was actually starting to do mountain bike as well. Really gifted athlete, uh, rode for the U.S. team did worlds was actually, um, getting ready to start her season in earnest over, um, in Belgium. She actually raced for the Padea Talonet team. Um, so I mean, in a pretty, pretty great team. Um, and she was hit and killed during a, a training ride over there. And basically people came together, um, and, and in her honor started the foundation. Um, and the idea behind it was to help young women accomplish their goals on and off the bike, uh, to gain experience and confidence. Um, obviously the biggest thing is providing opportunity for young women to excel at the sport. Right. But obviously creating, um, lifelong experiences or lasting experiences, uh, that they can take with them throughout their life. Uh, since its inception, we basically have had professional cyclists. Some have gone to the Olympics. Um, some have gone to world tour teams. Some have just excelled exponentially in their careers outside of the cycling world. Right. Obviously some of them are retired now. I mean, even six years on, um, but yeah, we've, we've had some amazing athletes come through the program and we're basically just continuing to um, support young women. And it's a, it's a program that essentially helps uh, women coming into the sport that have that gap, right? So you, if you look at it, there's a lot of, especially when people come out of college, if they want to continue to pursue cycling, um, there's definitely a gap in support um, for those athletes, those young women. So um, we're just trying to create the equity for those women so that they can actually excel if they want to on the professional level. Uh, so kind of creating, so we do a lot of, of the UCI road races. We have had in the past a team that has done a full cross schedule. Um, we've also had mountain bike athletes. Yeah. We're kind of all, we, have, we don't have any gravel athletes yet really, but we're probably going to make the foray into that as well. Cause I think that's, um, you see a lot of women going to that sport too. And so that's exciting. So that was a really long answer to that, but basically we help young women pursue lofty goals on and off the bike. Yeah. And I think we're essentially the only organization for young women that does that, that has that support in the U S I am fortunate enough that I have a lot of support for gravel. Um, but say, a listener is just now learning about the Amy D foundation or someone wants to get involved. What are ways that people can do that? 
Yeah. So we normally will post um, on our social media, uh, especially we're especially active on Instagram, but um, we'll, we'll always post if we have application open uh, for certain things. So it's never guaranteed exactly what um, we're going to do in a calendar year, especially, I mean, obviously the past two years, which is, I basically took over the foundation when COVID started, right? So we were like, what's our schedule going to be like? Uh, we don't know. So, um, but yeah, we, we always post on our social media. So if people want to follow us on Instagram and also it's really easy. My email is julie.amydfoundation.org and I'm really responsive. So if people have questions or want to know more about the program, they can always reach out to me. Fortunately, my last name isn't in there. So it's, we don't have to go into that, but yeah, it's super, it's super easy to just reach out. Yeah. Do you have any projects going on right now? Uh, yeah, we actually are getting ready to head to cross nationals. Um, and we made the choice very deliberately to basically give scholarships out to uh, riders that weren't necessarily going to be doing the elite race. So we are really trying to focus in on how to bring more people into the sport that may have not had opportunity before. So giving them a chance to go race on a national level across nationals is really cool. So. All right. I think we should start by setting the stage a little bit. I don't know. I think a lot of people do know how long your career was, but just to reiterate how long you've been in the sport, when did you start racing? What year is it? I mean, I guess I technically started racing in 2007, 2008, maybe, I think. What is it? How many years is that? Is that 13 years? Yeah, probably, right, maybe 12 years. I think 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. What would you say is the biggest difference in competitive cycling between today and when you started? Uh, that's That's a really good question. I feel like it's gotten more professional, especially on the woman's side. Um, I'm really enjoying uh, seeing, especially on the world tour level, um, the amount of coverage that the women are getting now, um, I think is really great. And so that's changed immensely. What about here in the United States? How, because you've been not Wolfpack, just Wolfpack, you, you know, you were on ButcherBox last year and whatever was 2020, you know, you were on Hoggins Berman, Superman before then you've been at the top level of the women's Peloton in the United States for the better part of a decade. How has it changed? How has it grown or gone backwards? Or what have you seen that's different now than it was back in 2010 when you first started going up at that level? I mean, I actually think there's less teams now. Um, I don't know if sponsorship has moved out of road and into other areas, but it, to me, feels like there's less teams, which is sad. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to say if that's, if it's sponsorship or if it's just, you know, the changing tide rate of racing. You see with gravel coming, I mean, I have three former teammates that that's all they do is race gravel. I mean, I think the options and opportunities are are different and they look different and sponsorship seems to be moving in other areas. So I think road has changed. That's not like to take anything away from the validity of road cycling. I think there's a lot of excitement, especially in crit racing. 
but yeah, it's, it's just different. It's just a, a different landscape. It feels like as far as teams go and as far as sponsorship goes. What perspectives did you have when you entered competitive cycling that ended up being false? Uh, a big one is like that everybody's there to help you, which is false. That's not true at all. Um, I think there are a lot of really selfish, I mean, not a lot. I want to say there are selfish people in the sport um, that are really only looking out for themselves and you just have to be careful and take those people with a grain of salt. Initially coming into it, I was like just so excited and, you know, would extend myself backwards for people. And some of those people were my teammates and they're not my friend anymore. And I mean, it's just kind of like, yeah, you have to, you have to be a little bit more wary than I think people understand. I think that was one thing that, I mean, not to say that I'm jaded, but they're not good people everywhere. Right. So like there are bad people in cycling too. And I think that was like, um, especially for me for like being an old punk and like, especially with like cyclocross being like, yeah, these are my punks, but like, they're like bad people. And I feel bad saying that, but they're, you just have to like, not everyone that's a cyclist is going to have the same, um, you want, you want them to, but they're not going to have the same thinking that you do. And whether that's on like representation in cycling or trans rights in cycling, like it's kind of upsetting, but you also have to like, so there's just a, there's just like, not everyone is thinking like you do. You think they are, but they're not. We've all been there, Julie. Like we literally have all been there where you are new to a team or there's a new initiative within a team that you were on. And this applies at amateur and at professional levels where there's like this super huge excitement. It's like January and everybody's like eager to, you know, see where the world's going to go next. And then something starts to happen and that eagerness and excitement gets chipped away. And then you start to see the true colors of somebody a little bit more and a little bit more. And the next thing you know, all those dreams and all that excitement is like so gone. But like, we're still in this sport. We still love it. There are still good people just because there's that one, two, three bad people that you run across or shouldn't force you to dislike the team or the initiative or whatever it happens to be that you're chasing. How did you stay positive and stay focused for so many years while dealing with that very, very common and very normal reality? I think I'm really good at expressing myself. If I don't like something or someone, I usually just, you know, if I don't like you. So you have to like surround yourself with people that you trust. Um, they don't necessarily have to be teammates. I mean, there are some, there are years that I loved all of my teammates. Right. But some years that's not the case, or maybe there's, you know, you just, I don't want to say it's always been teammates, right. Cause there are just have people been people that I just really haven't gotten along with that have not been teammates. I think finding the people that you get along with, regardless of whether they're your teammates or not, is like a really good way to help yourself through you know, the, the month or the week or even the year that you're not, not really feeling it. As I stayed in racing longer, like finding out that you need to have a more grounded home life too. So that means being 
more communicative with your partner and like spending time with your family is also really helpful to you to for longevity of your self like your own mental health that's how I managed to continue through I mean I think everyone though had a really hard time with last year and obviously affected I think the way I felt this year and my decision to retire you mentioned like the difficulty of last year and how that factored into your decision to retire I was pretty surprised, but at the same time, not surprised by how many people retired this year. And I am wondering for you in particular, how did you know that you were ready for ready to move on? When things start to feel like a chore, right? So, you know, you're doing this sport, getting, you're not rich, you know, you have another job. I'm putting in maybe 20 hours a week sometimes. And it just like got to the point where I was just like, I don't want to go ride my bike. I just don't want to. I would look at my bike and be like, I don't want to. And and it, maybe it was easier because my body has basically started to fail me. And I think there's some other riders that have the same problem where it just gets to a point where like my hip and my back were so bad. I mean, so after some of the races this year, it was so bad and I was in so much pain you know, and I've dealt with that pain for years. Like it's something that changes the way your brain works. It can cause like really bad depression. And I was just like, I, I just can't, it's just not for me to be in that much pain constantly is just not something that I want to be in anymore. And I'm still in pain, like pretty much constantly, but I'm trying to work on getting all those imbalances corrected so I can not be in pain all the time. And I mean, just being on your bike, it, it just didn't, it was, it just hurt. And it was, it was just hard. I just, I don't want to be in pain anymore. I think that was a huge factor in making me not making me feel like it was a chore. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was on a road bike again for the first time, like yesterday, <laughs> just been like gravel since, since Winston-Salem. But I guess for you, um. I saw that you were doing uh, some kickboxing. Is that what I saw? That is that is correct. I, I do Muay Thai. So, oh, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it's Thai kickboxing. So I started doing that three weeks ago, I think four weeks ago. So that's that's super fun. And I mean, I'm super competitive. And I always said that cycling wasn't physical enough for me. Like I like to push people around and stuff. Like it wasn't aggressive enough. I'm not a sprinter. Keep that in mind. So, um, I was not the one at the end. Um, but yeah, I like really missed soccer. So, and I was super physical on that. And, um, so this is a way for me to like be super physical. Right. So like two times a week and I just like go punch and kick stuff a lot, which is really awesome. It's like a really great, it's really great sport and yeah, I love it. So I mean, I've kind of been doing it for a, a year, sort of, but not really going to class for it. So, um, yeah, so now I'm learning stuff and it's really cool. It's cool. To, it's always good to learn new things. I guess that kind of answered my next question. Like, I know you're really competitive and I was wondering um, kind of what you're doing to, uh, I guess, fulfill that. Right. So there's a, I did, so did start doing a ride that I'm doing on my mountain bike and that's competitive. Like I get dropped from it. <laughs> 
Um, but also I haven't been riding, but it's like a gravel route, gravel off-road dirt ride that happens every weekend. And I've been doing that. And so that's been helping with my competitiveness, but yeah, Muay Thai is definitely, it's really nice. It's humbling too. I picked up racing and it was like super easy, but this is like very much about, uh, skill and proficiency and technique. And yeah, so there are people that I'm like, yeah, get them on a bike and I can whatever. But yeah, no, these, these girls can beat me up like for sure. So like it's, it's humbling and it should be right. You want to just come out there and learn something new and not have an ego about it. And that's hard for me because I always have an ego about every, I don't know. That's yeah. Being competitive, you always have an ego, right. But this is like very humbling because it's, if you have an ego, you're going to get your ass whooped. Can we talk about ego for a second? Because like when you look at your career in bike racing, your career in bike racing is the exact opposite of somebody who who has an ego. You have been the most selfless bike racer of bike racers. Your results have always been geared for the people who are on your team, whether it was with Hoggins Berman or Pepper Palace. I forgot that you were on Pepper Palace. It was one of my absolute favorite memories learning that you were on Pepper Palace when I was in a Pepper Palace in New Orleans. But like you haven't won a ton of races. You've won seven races in your entire career, but you were on teams with Harriet Owen, who wins billions of races, you know, Leanne Ganser and Lily Williams. And, you know, this year you were on a team with people like Celine, who will be winning races in the future. You know, you've always been that consummate support player. Do you think that those type of people, people like you are out there or were you, you know, a rarity, somebody who loves doing the hard work? Oh, I think every team has those people. All the big teams have those people. Their teams wouldn't be as successful, right? If they didn't have those people. I mean, for me, honestly, there are some things that I can do really well and there are other things that I can't. And the reality is like, I'm never going to be the person that's going to go off the front and just smash it for 20 laps and like, and win a race, right? That's fine. Where I can contribute is in the attitude that I bring to the team and, and the work that I can do in the race. But yeah, I think there, I think every team has to have them and, you know, maybe some teams have everybody's a superstar and they can all win and that's awesome. Um, but I, I don't think that's the reality. Right. And I think when you make sure there are people like me on the team, I think it creates a better atmosphere for all the other riders. Personally, it's inspiring when you see someone that's, willing to give themselves to the team for like the team goal is right. And I mean, we had that even people that could win, like when I, when I needed a couple of points for, um, to get the overall for the lap leader in Winston-Salem and like everybody just totally obliterated themselves to, so I could like, so I could get that. I mean, like, you know, Celine, Caitlin, like just Kristen, everybody was like just killing themselves. And yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's rare that I think everyone can do that. I think you see it more once um, you're up in the upper echelons, if there's multi-year contracts and people don't have to worry about trying to find another team for the next year, they don't have to get those results from themselves, which is really nice. You're seeing that more in women's cycling, which is really cool. But yeah, I mean, I think they're definitely out there. 
I mean, Kim, Kim Lucci could win a race, right? But what is she doing? She's doing, she's literally on my wheel. Like whenever I go, she would always be on my wheel. She reads for DNA. And then she was there for Maggie for the lead out, like every time, you know, like Brenna was the same. Liza was the same. I mean, it's just like, they're there. And when a team is good, you always have to look at who else is there. Like maybe they've grown up in team sports. So they understand that there's a, there's a goal for everyone. You seized on a point there that I thought was really interesting. And, and this is something that I've only started to become conscious of. Bike racing is business, even in the American bike racing world where, you know, we're not making living wages to be a professional bike racer. But in a lot of the cases, in the vast majority, I would say, of the cases, your contracts are year to year. So it's, you know, January 1st to December 31st. I've only started to see in women's bike racing two-year contracts come into existence in the last, I don't know, two, three years. And that's even only for a handful, a small minority of the women. Do you think that that sort of reality where it is like these teams get shuffled off every single year, there's a brand new crop every year and you've got to be fighting for that new contract, that new spot. Do you think that's, that's taking away from, you know, the, the longevity and success of women's sport in the United States? I mean, I don't really think, yeah, any teams here exist on a multi-year contract. I could be wrong. It may have some influence, but I think also the interesting thing about most of the women's field is that they do have careers outside of cycling in the U.S., right? So if they find a good team, um, maybe they're not looking to go to that world tour level, right? So they're, they're still... Um, an impetus to for them to stay on that team and to do their job like right for the team. So if there's a director and they tell you to do this, this, and this, and you perform those things throughout the year, you're not costing them money. You're a great teammate and you gel well. There's no reason for them to not bring you back on the team. Well, it may cause some, some, some issue. I mean, I think maybe in like regional teams that maybe go to some of the races and they want it, you know, there's two or three riders that want to be seen. So they're not willing to do the work. But when, when I think the teams that are racing carry themselves as professional or consider what they're doing in the professional sphere, then I think that's a, that's less likely to happen. Right. So I don't think so. I don't think they're pursuing it at a, you know, to get to the world tour level, in my opinion, especially if they're doing mainly crits, right. The training is less for crits. Let's be real. You're not doing a 70 mile road race. So you don't need to train as much, but, but you know, so the teams that are doing crits, the riders are, are focused on performing at their best of the ability and not really worried about moving to another team for the next year on the world tour level. Obviously it's different because those women are, this is their life, right? They want to make that contract with the money. So maybe they are, it is different and it's actually not rare anymore to have two-year contracts starting with a lot of the teams coming into being world tour this year and the upcoming next year they are trying to get their riders on at least two-year contracts it's better for the entire team it's better for them who wants to go to a job that they only think are gonna they're gonna have for one year anywhere in any profession that's awful so if you can have that guarantee uh, to you that's awesome i did pick up 
just from observation, different forms of mentorship throughout the year. Like one moment that I thought was really positive was Kristen going up to a racer, Kristen Arnold going up to a racer after the race and providing some feedback, like really constructive criticism versus some other experiences where like a racer got berated during the race with like obscenities and stuff. Um, And so I guess my thoughts are, or my question for you is like, what, how do you think veteran racers can help guide newer racers if they're doing something wrong or just like need, yeah, need, need a correction of some kind. I've approached it both ways, right? I'm definitely, I've definitely dropped some F-bombs on some people. They're being really dangerous in a race, but you also have to understand it's a race. Everyone's adrenaline is going and you need to be able to go to that rider after the race and talk to them and explain what the situation is or reach out to one of their teammates and, or their director and say, Hey, this is what I observed. You know, I want you to know, honestly, I think that's what the more experienced and veteran riders can do. Like, yeah, we can all get, we all get heated, right? Like i me and Tina have berated people, but Tina has been berated in races before. And she's not, a, she's not a young rider. I mean, not a new rider. Right. So like we, I mean, I've been rated in races before. Um, you just have to like take it as a new rider, take that with a grain of salt, but also understand that you're probably getting yelled at because you're doing something wrong and try to understand that. So new riders can be like, Hey, this happened in the race. Can you tell me what I did? Um, old riders can go up to this people and, and say, here's what you did, but you have to come at it with not an aggressive shitty attitude after the race. Like if you need a day, give it a day. Don't, you don't have to go up to the rider right after the race. Yeah. Just like you gotta like keep communication open and try and understand what they were doing and where they were coming from. And then what you were doing and where you were coming from and meet in the middle. Um, sometimes also sometimes shit just happens, right? So if there's a mistake that happens and it causes people to crash, especially if they're a rider that's not known for doing something like that. Like, it's it's racing, right? I can I don't know why, but like when you were talking about that, I got this image in my mind of a race that I did at Intelligentsia in 2019 where I took a corner badly. It was I don't remember if you remember the race. I think it was like the not like the Evanston College race. It was one of the ones up north that had like a chicane after like a real quick like right left and then you go up this like little teeny tiny false flat that shouldn't be a big problem. But I totally screwed up the corner there and some guy came blowing by me and he's just like, listen, you could do that all day long if you, if you want to, but eventually you're going to run out of energy by riding stupid. And I was just like, Oh wait, that makes a lot of sense. I really screwed that up at the time. I had nothing but obscenities for him. So I just kept my mouth shut. But like in retrospect, I'm like, Nope, Totally 100% right. I needed to do better. I needed to learn better. While we're talking about talking, you know, there is this somewhat, I don't want to say sinister, but there is this undercurrent sometimes of shit talking, you know, you know, like this is, there is some backstabbing that happens in the Peloton 
especially when you're looking for teams or you're looking for opportunities or you're trying to break in, you've probably been victim of some shit talking at certain points in times. And, you know, you've probably seen it happen, but there has to be a good way or a better way to respond to it and deal with it than kind of all the ideas that I have in my mind. What would you say to a newer rider if she or he was aware that somebody was talking about them behind their back in a negative way? Like it just goes back to wider. Like you have to, you have to go up to that person. Um, or if you don't comfortable doing that, go to their teammates and talk to their teammates because like someone on that team is going to get it. Right. And they're going to be like, yeah, sorry. You know, that person, they are a dickhead and, or an asshole or, and you shouldn't, you should take with what they say with the grain, but I'll nip it in the bud. Like we don't like, it's cute and fun to have like little beefs that are like fun. Like Travis, like Corey, like, like it's more like a pro wrestling beef, right? Like we created it and like now we have people interested in it and want to be viewers of them racing because they want to see who wins, what happens. And that's fun and that's cheeky. Um, but yeah, if it's like, like we're out of high school, we don't, nobody needs to deal with that anymore. So like really, you really have to like, it's a physical sport you know, it's me mental toughness too. Like you really have to just be like, Hey, what you're saying is not cool to the person or to their teammates. And, and you have to, you just deal with it like, to the point where it's not okay, like they're East or homophobic or transphobic. Like we're not, that is not something that I deal with in the governing body. Whoever's in charge of the races, like those people are, should not be welcome period. So like, that's a totally different thing. It's just like a little like you're sketchy and racing, blah, 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 whatever. That's one thing. But like, yeah, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. Yeah, that's not I'm done with you. Everyone should be done with you. Well, I feel like that is a very important topic that you just brought up in terms of a lot of issues prevalent in cycling. Like there is this like lasting sexism homophobia, transphobia, all of the above, racism, it's horrifyingly prevalent in the sport for whatever reason. And something I appreciate about you is that you're very outspoken about these topics and stand up for what you believe in. Um, And that shows through the Amy D Foundation as well. I think that kind of leads into a question that Rob had in terms of how we can all be better allies especially, yeah. Do you want to take, take this one? (laughs) Sure. Every year for Christmas, I get these books. Friends of mine will buy me books because they want me to be a more well-read human being. And this year I made the conscious effort of not just shifting them to the uh, bookshelf and making them look pretty. I wanted to read them. Two of the books that I got this year were about men, either mentoring or being better allies to women in general, uh, both in the business world and in social, you know, normal life spheres. One of the questions that was posed in one of these books, it's called Good Guys, 
and it has no relation to Michael Tan and good guys racing New York City, but the basic premise is still there. That you just, you as a man cannot just sit by and be a passive, you know, supporter of women, a supporter or mentor of women. You need to become firsthand engaged. You need to become an ally. You need to step in and say, hold on, we need to do better. You know, because a lot of times in a boardroom, it'll be seven men, one woman. How is she supposed to mentor herself in that situation? You know, and even if it's two women and seven men, this the odds are still not there. So the men need to step up. And this is not a savior complex. This is a this is a sheer numbers complex. But the problem that I have and a problem that a lot of listeners have who want to be better allies is that we don't know firsthand what a lot of the issues are. We can see them. We can see them from an outsider's perspective. We can see them from a perspective of somebody who wants to be a bigger and better ally. But until we find out from a woman directly what it's like, our ability to help, our ability to be a better ally is handicapped. So the question is, for the majority of the men who are in this sport, who are, you know, demographically making up this sport, what are the things that we need to know about the woman's experience, the experience of, of, of a female athlete in this sport so that we can just hit the tip of the iceberg, just start to begin to become better allies? My experiences are different from someone else's experiences are different from someone else's experiences. Um, I think you have to don't be afraid. Like I think so many people and it's like learning a language, right? Like, so people don't want to learn a language because they don't want to look stupid. Um, You know, they don't want to like take that. They like, they will read about it or they'll do grammar. Right. And they'll do it on their phone or something, but they don't learn the language because they don't want to talk with native speakers and get embarrassed if they sound wrong or if they, if they don't sound how they are supposed to. When the reality is someone that speaks another language wants you to reach, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, wants you to reach out and like, we'll help you. And it's not their job. I don't want to say it like, like, as like, it's not my job to educate you. But like, if you're coming at me with like some sort of understanding and you want to have a conversation and it's not just me educating you on everything, then let's have it. Like, because that's the only way like communities will change is people have conversations. It's like, I saw something the other day that was like, you know, one of the things that they, that the person said was that ally that has that their pronouns in their email, but doesn't do anything else like that performative, performative work instead of doing real work and like, but won't ask for someone's pronouns, like make the, make the attempt, have the questions and have a conversation and be willing to be wrong. Like, don't be embarrassed to like have conversations about race or gender, or don't be embarrassed, like have the conversation. And understand too, that if someone's like, if you're like, I'm tired, I don't want to like, understand that too. give people their space and like their time to rest and not be always your educator. 
but, um, but yeah, like, I mean, just having conversations and like opening your community up to people that you wouldn't normally maybe have conversations with. And I mean, understand, like, I mean, yes, the, the people that listen to this and, and race generally are 80%, you know, identify as male. And you have, you have to understand that, like, it's hard to like put yourself as a, as a, someone that identifies as, as I do, like just to put yourself in a situation where you may be the only at a ride. There are so many small examples of ways that I don't know how a woman's experience, a cisgender woman's experience or a transgender woman's experience or a woman of color, her experiences in this sport. But like things that I can think like little practical things that I can think of, like on a ride with a bunch of my male friends, we stop wherever we want to stop to go to the bathroom. That's just fine. It's just the way that men's anatomy works. Women, you know, that there are different, you know, there are different concerns about security and privacy, you know, for just going to the bathroom or something simple like women riding alone versus a man riding alone. I have never felt my personal security threatened while riding alone. But I know that my wife, when she would go out for a ride in the park, she would feel uncomfortable because some creepy dude would come up to her on the on the ride and start talking to her in a completely uninvited manner. And it's just like I didn't even think about having these questions and having these conversations until I started asking other people about what their experiences were like. So I think that ultimately, Julie, your point is probably the most salient and probably the best. Don't be afraid to ask the question. Don't be afraid to have the conversation. But also, you aren't my or anybody's designated female whisperer or female guide or anything like that, that I, as a man, need to be willing to, I, as a person, need to be willing to take a step back and be like, okay, Julie doesn't want to talk about it today, but I still want her to know that I care. And I still want her to know that the next time we go out for a ride, I will be sensitive to this. Or the next time we show up at a race, I know how she wants me to approach her, you know, sort of thing. So we're right at about the hour mark here. We've been talking about some super heavy, serious topics. I want to close out uh, with some a little bit more lighthearted ones. And I know Celine's come up with a couple of uh, lightning round-esque questions for Julie. So some questions that uh, hopefully you can nail something right off the top of your head and we can end with a little bit more of a positive, happy, lighthearted note since we are now going into the holiday season, the season of lights, the season of Hallmark movies, the season of, I don't know what else. Yeah. So just go on, Celine. You've got some good ones here. I know that Julie's got some opinions, some lovely opinions, and she's not afraid to share them. So uh, it's one of my favorite things about you. <laughs> and cycling has some really goofy controversies that people get, in my opinion, way too heated about. So I'm going to ask you a question. And then it's pretty much like they're one word answers. But if you want to elaborate, just 
just for fun, go for it. Um, so first one is disc brakes or rim brakes? Well, you know, rim. <laughs> Do I have to go into any more than that? <laughs> if you want to give it like a little sentence about why, just like rim. Your girl needs all the help getting. Why am I going to put more on my period? <laughs> Perfect. Okay, this one's been pretty uh, popular lately. I think just because of the cooling temperatures, leg warmers and socks. Socks over or under? Okay, I always hate questions like this where people police how people wear clothes. Please don't be the cop on your rides and give people shit for how they wear shit. Like, literally, it doesn't matter. Just wear whatever you want, however you want, and let people wear whatever they want, however they want to. So that's that's how I feel about it. Don't be a cop on your ride. That's exactly what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> okay, this is one that I didn't know about until this year, but shaving your legs the day before a race, yay or nay? I mean, if I remember, like who who remembers though? Okay, well, so to explain that one a little bit, someone told me that it, your performance is inhibited by shaving your legs the day before. Oh my god, is this the is this the time trial thing that you don't want to put you don't want to have to force your body to put out any more energy to grow hair and so therefore Chris Froome needs to not shave his legs the day before his time trial? There were a bunch of really weird explanations for it. Like one of them was the like the little cuts in your legs, you lose blood volume. There were just like a bunch of ridiculous explanations. So that's why I brought that one up. It seemed extra silly. <laughs> if you're like, if you're riding the world championships, then, you know, do all the research and do what you got to do. If you're just rocking up to some local crit, what do you worry about? You can, you can eat a ho-ho before you race. You can do whatever you want. I'm just saying, it's just not, no, no people. No, let's not. Yeah. Worry about that. What about this one? Gloves or no gloves in a race? Oh, I mean, I I used to wear no gloves forever. And I just started wearing gloves um, in the last couple of years. I mean, just because I want to. I mean, but I'll go on rides and stuff without them. Um, but you got to think about the sun. So, like, let's be real. You don't want that sun damage. So maybe wear the gloves. Otherwise, you got old lady hands like I do. And that's not good. So you want liver spots. No, no, you do not. No, you do not. I think there was one more, Celine, one more. That's This one's a good one. Should smaller frame bikes run 650B wheels? Get out of here. What are we talking about? What are you talking about? For a road race? For a road bike? No, no, absolutely not. Should companies get better at figuring out aerodynamics for smaller bikes? Yeah. That's actually what they should worry about. Don't be worrying about changing up somebody's wheels. No, put those 700 Cs on. 650B, get out of here. Um, no, absolutely not. But let's work on the geometry. So. Well, great. Thank you so much, Julie, for indulging us in our lightning round questions and for having the real conversations with us as well. Congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you all having me on and I'll be watching 
with excitement to see what Celine does next. Um, she is an up and coming writer. There are a lot of really exciting writers coming up, and yeah, I'm really excited what she to see what she can do and to see what the other writers that I've seen coming through can do in the next couple of seasons. So, Ooh, well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is your source for everything that you want to know about this independent cyclist content creator-owned network. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly, with the wonderful assistance of our senior women's correspondent, Celine Oberholzer. We will be back next week with Adam Mills of Source Endurance. We'll be doing a show on, on, on something that I think everybody's going to find very interesting. What we should have learned in 2021. Professor Mills will be here to help teach us about all those lessons that this year has really revealed to us. So please come back next week and join us here for more stories from our Criterium Nation.